Our passage this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience. Whenever your obedience is complete, you are looking at things as they are outwardly, if indeed is confident in himself that he is Christ. Let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up, and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absence, such persons we are also indeed when present. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your grace to us and your wonderful mercies to us. And Father, we pray that this morning as we listen to Tom, that we will come to know you better. We pray, Father, that as we come to know you better, we will love you more, and then we would be obedient to you. Father, we pray this morning that you would be with Tom, that you would speak to through him, and that our hearts would be open and receptive to your word. Bless us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. The reason that I ended up going uh, from verse 1 through verse 11 is uh, it became clear in the passage that, that there's a real there's a, a kind of bookends there. At the beginning, Paul says, Now I myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. And then in verse 11, let such a person consider this, that what we are in words in word by letters when absent, such persons we are indeed when present. So that, that absent present thing is like bookends in this passage. And then it, it started to really come together why it's arranged that way. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. One unavoidable fact that we are confronted with over and over in the New Testament is that this rebellious and cursed and corrupt world is temporarily under the rule of the enemy of Christ and his church. Now, there are many passages that, that talk about this. That enemy's dominion is limited and temporary. He is not God's peer in any way. Uh, he is God's subordinate. 
But during the time that this world remains under the curse, it has been granted to this enemy to act as the ruler of this world. John 14, 30. As the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The one exception to the enemy's temporary dominion on earth is us, the church. We who belong to Jesus Christ through faith in Him alone have already been delivered by our Father out of Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. We are no longer of this world, but we are called by God to remain in this world for a time because He has a purpose for our being here. As long as we remain here on this cursed earth, you and I wake up every single day behind enemy lines. And in order for us to effectively do battle against our enemy, we must know who the real enemy is and we must know how God intends for us to do battle against him. God has clearly answered both of those questions in his word. Our enemy, of course, is Satan. The fallen angel who once held the most exalted position among all of the angels. He was the anointed cherub, the watcher over the very presence of God. If you read Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, you'll see, you'll see that both begin speaking in terms of an earthly king who is opposed to God, but then in each passage there's this movement away from, from things that could possibly be true of a human being to things that are definitely speaking about this rebellious angel. He was not satisfied to have the most honored role among all created beings. He wanted to be like the Most High God. A third of the angels of heaven joined him in his rebellion. And God cast them out of his presence and cast them down to earth. Revelation 12 speaks of that casting down. Satan's campaign for the souls of human beings began in the Garden of Eden when he successfully deceived Eve and facilitated Adam's rebellion against the authority and the Word of God, all of mankind became infected, infected by and enslaved to sin. Under the God-imposed curse of death and made subjects of Satan's domain of darkness, we were all children of wrath. God's Word tells us that, uh, that Satan is fierce, ruthless, relentless, and powerful. His co-conspirators consist of many rulers, powers, and principalities or authorities. You'll see those three words used multiple times in Paul's letters. And these rulers exist in both the angelic and the human realms. It is... It is the angelic rulers who are pulling the puppet strings of the, the earthly rulers, certain earthly rulers. Satan and his army 
are not a threat to be taken lightly. 1 Peter 5.8 says to the saints of God, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan will never be able to reclaim the soul of any person who has come to faith in Jesus. That cannot happen because God seals us with his Holy Spirit as the down payment of our inheritance when we, when we hear and believe the gospel. We are signed and sealed and will soon be delivered into the kingdom of our, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But as long as we have breath, Satan will do absolutely everything in his power. He will use every weapon at his disposal to cripple us and to make us useless as ambassadors of Christ until our part in this grand war is over. There is a great conspiracy at play in the world that makes all of the conspiracies proposed by all of the conspiracy theorists look like absolute child's play. Because the real enemy's objective is the eternal souls of men, women, and children all over the world. And beloved, all he has to do to succeed is to hang on to what he has already got. To what he has already secured. Because we all, since Adam, start out in his domain not in the domain of our God. It would be hard to imagine a more effective way for Satan to derail the church's assigned commission to storm the gates of hell than by sidetracking us on the two strategic fronts I mentioned just a moment ago. If Satan can get us to expend our resources fighting the wrong enemy, then... He will, he will certainly derail us from our commission and our purpose on earth. But even if we rightly identify the enemy, if Satan can convince us to use weapons and tactics that are ineffective, then he will still render us useless in terms of of defeating his opposition to Christ and the gospel of Christ. Paul addresses the first of those two diversions very directly and forcefully in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians 6.12, he tells us who our enemy is and isn't, and both are important. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, it may surprise some of you to hear that our real enemy is not flesh and blood. Paul is certainly not diminishing the fact that most of humanity is on the enemy's side in this great spiritual war. He's certainly not saying that sinful people pose no threat to the agenda of Christ on earth what he's saying is that in order for us to be effective in winning the battle for the souls of men, we must focus our offensive against the deceivers, not against the deceived. Against the deceivers, not against the deceived. 
Our real fight is not against men, women, and children who are just like we used to be. Enslaved to the lies of Satan. Our real fight, though, is against the one whom Jesus in John chapter 8 called a liar and the father of lies. And it is also against the rulers, the powers, the authorities in the angelic and human realms who are the militant advocates of Satan's lies. And they are, they are many. And they seem to be multiplying like rabbits. We will not always be able to, to distinguish between the deceivers and the deceived. But we need to understand that if you and I treat deceived sinners as our enemies, we will badly miss the mark. And we will drive people away from Christ rather than toward Him. We should have great compassion on lost sinners. God has told us who our real enemy is, but correctly identifying the enemy does not tell us all that we need to win the war. The passage that we're considering this morning comes a lot closer to that goal. So let's see what it has to say. I see this passage as having three parts structurally, but two essential parts thematically. Let me explain. At the beginning and end of these 11 verses, in verses 1 and 2, and in verses 7 through 11, Paul addresses how we should and should not do battle against the work of Satan in the church. Against the work of Satan in the church, or against the church. Then in the center of the passage, in verses 3 through 6, Paul addresses how the church should and should not do battle against the work of Satan in the world. We're going to start with, that, with the, the brackets, the outside parts of this passage, verses 1 and 2 and verses 7 through 11. Fighting the real enemy with the right weapons in the church. Paul, who had been commissioned directly by the resurrected Jesus to be his apostle to the Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire, was being treated by some in Corinth as if he was the real enemy of the saints. One of the accusations that had been leveled against Paul was that the way he conducted himself during his in-person visits was radically different than the way he conducted himself in his letters, as if he were two different men. Paul sums up this complaint very concisely in verse 10. He says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. The word translated contemptible means of no account. Not worthy even to be considered. And Paul directly addresses that criticism in verses 1 and 2 and then he comes back to that defense in verses 7 through 11. Uh, I want to read those two sections without verses 3 through 6 in the middle so you can, you can see how the two kind of uh, stick together. Now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some 
who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. And then five verses later, he picks this up again. He says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I shall not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. It's very clear that Paul's severe letter of rebuke that he sent between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, a letter that we don't have to, to view today, had been considerably more forceful than the personal visit that had preceded it. So the accusation that his critics leveled against him was that this proved Paul to be two-faced. That he didn't have the courage to speak as plainly when face-to-face -face as he did when he sent any of his letters. Sounds a lot like what you see on the internet these days. You go to online forums and people who are generally very civil and kind when they're face-to-face, -face, they just drop it all and they go right out the window as far as uh, they ditch all civility and they're just ruthless. But Paul flatly denies that he and his co-workers have been guilty of that kind of two-faced behavior. Listen once again to verses 10 and 11. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. You see what he's saying here? He's saying that his critics are simply wrong. He's saying that there's absolutely no duplicity, no double-mindedness in the way that he addresses the saints when face-to-face -face and when absent. And what he's saying is that the difference that they see is very deliberate. It doesn't make him two different people. It's two different approaches that are very, very intentional. I believe there's no question that Paul took a less forceful stance when he met with the churches in person than he did in his letters. But that was by intention. It was not because he lacked the courage to be as direct in person as he was in writing. It was because Paul chose meekness, the meekness and gentleness of Christ when he was with the saints face to face. He reserved his most forceful rebukes for his letters in the same way that he reserved his most detailed and eloquent theological presentations of the truths of God for his letters. I can think of many reasons that Paul would choose to do so in both cases, none of which imply any kind of duplicity or dishonesty. Personally, I have found that correction is sometimes better considered and received when it is done in writing than when it is done in person. It can be much easier for a person being corrected to objectively consider 
what is said and have time to ponder and pray about it before responding when it's in writing. But, but if a correction is presented face to face, that person being corrected feels an urgency to respond right on the spot. And that can easily lead to a confrontation that is neither necessary nor productive. By sending his harshest rebuke in the form of a letter, Paul had opportunity to carefully choose his words and to make sure that he expressed his deep love for these dear saints in the same context as the correction. And that's exactly what he did. Paul had applied this same approach when he exhorted these same saints in chapters 8 and 9 to follow through on their earlier promise to, to generously participate in the contribution that was being gathered for this, the impoverished saints in Jerusalem. He reserved that exhortation for this letter so that when he actually came to visit them, he would have no need to exhort. So that his visit could be filled with affection rather than confrontation. Satan's goal at every turn was to make the church at Corinth treat Paul as the enemy and to make Paul treat the saints there as the enemy. Satan is the master of divide and conquer. And he loves nothing more than to get us to bite and devour one another. But Paul was very prayerful, purposeful, and strategic. He was working to nurture godly love between himself and these saints, as well as within the local community of believers, between the saints. When Paul had opportunity to meet face-to-face -face with the saints in Corinth, as in each of the churches that God had created through his ministry, it was his purpose in those personal visits to heal wounds, even wounds that his letters had exposed. It was his resolute purpose to display the love of Christ to the people of Christ whenever he was able to be with them face to face. As for the accusation that his speech when face to face with the saints was not merely unimpressive but was of no account, <laughs> unworthy of consideration. I can only conclude that that particular accusation came from unbelievers who had crept in among the saints. We know that at least uh, some of those who were fomenting this rebellion against Paul were simply not saved because he says so. In chapter 11, verse 13, he says such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And then he says it's no surprise that they disguise themselves because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, Paul told these Corinthian saints, the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. No wonder these fake apostles considered Paul's speech to be contemptible. The word of the cross that he faithfully preached was utter foolishness to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech 
or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. This is critically important, beloved. We need to have this seared into our minds and hearts. Paul had neither the desire nor the inclination to be counted among the great orators in the Greek tradition who were well known to the people in Corinth and Athens. He had no desire to match their rhetorical flourish or to manipulate the emotions of a crowd the way that they did. Paul understood that that kind of exalted oratory turns the affection and attention of men toward men and not toward God. And he certainly had no intention of teaching that the kind of useless, man-centered nonsense that such men taught. He was absolutely committed to proclaiming the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ in a manner that, that focused all the attention on Christ and none of it on himself. As one dear sister in our body used to say, some preachers are too much man and too little Christ. That accusation could not have been made against Paul legitimately. Yeah, in fact, the accusation that his speech was contemptible or of no account, it was, that's ridiculous. All you have to do is read some of what he wrote. Uh, I should say, read some of what is recorded that he said, especially in the book of Acts, right? Paul was no slouch when it came to the spoken word. Read his words to the lovers of philosophy who were assembled at the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17. It's a magnificent sermon. Read his compelling and eloquent defense of his own ministry before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. There's no, there's no flies on that speech. While some of Paul's detractors saw his always gospel-focused words as unimpressive and even contemptible. The problem was not with the preacher, but with the hearers. And that will happen to us too if we speak the truth in love. There will be people who label us as idiots. But if you're going to be a fool, be a fool for Christ. In all cases, Paul spoke and wrote with the only true authority that exists, the authority given to him by Jesus Christ. And as he says here in verse 8, when he asserted that authority within the church, his purpose was, quote, for building you up and not for destroying you. All of this is a very valuable reminder to you and me. It does not mean that a correction should never be done in person. It's not a formula or a checklist. It is an appeal to loving humility and utter dependence on God in all of our dealings with one another within the body of Christ. It means that we must be prayerful, thoughtful, and careful 
in the way that we go about correcting one another within the body of Christ. Sometimes a written correction, together with some time prayerfully waiting on the Lord to work in the hearts of His people, is a far better course of action than a face-to-face confrontation. When we do come together, beloved, as much as possible, let us do so to mend and to reconcile and to embrace one another as fellow heirs of the grace of life. We must never go about the task of correcting our fellow saints in a manner that employs fleshly or worldly tactics. We must not depend on the power of our superior speech or our persuasive words of wisdom to convince or to shame or to transform another person's heart because that won't get the job done. We must continually depend on the only one who has ever been sovereign over a human heart. And that is our our great God. I hope that you see that the essence of Paul's defense here is that he does not and will not use the world's tactics in his dealings with the people of God. And you and I must, must follow him in that resolve. In verses 3 through 6, which is the centerpiece of this passage, Paul moves from how we battle the enemy's efforts directed against the church to how we battle the enemy's efforts in the world. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5, and then we'll look at verse 6 separately. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. (laughs) Those two verses are just amazing. Earlier I mentioned two things we need to get right if we are to be effective against the fiery arrows of Satan. We must rightly identify the enemy and we must use the right weapons and strategies against that enemy. If we're paying even superficial attention to God's word, we know who the real enemy is. But we tend not to be quite so clear when it comes to which weapons and tactics we must employ in doing battle against that enemy. We all too easily take up the weapons and the warfare of the flesh. And that won't get the job done. On the strategy side, we have to understand that the objective that we are pursuing on Christ's behalf is never structural change. It is heart change. Let me say that again. The objective that we are pursuing on Christ's behalf is never structural change or outward change. It is heart change. A change of visible behavior that is not driven by a transformation of heart is just a mirage. It's a lie. It's worth nothing. Just ask the countless people in Afghanistan who all of a sudden took up the draconian practices of the Taliban 
when they became conquered by the Taliban. It's not in their hearts. It's in their behavior. It's not just non-Christians who have a problem here <laughs> with externals instead of internals. Christians, or at least people calling themselves Christians, have a long and sordid history of settling for structural change when God cares about heart change. Perhaps the most blatantly bad example here is the Crusades that lasted nearly 200 years at the beginning of the second millennium A.D. Powerful rulers of self-proclaimed Christian nations attempted to reclaim formerly Christian territories from the control of Muslims by the same means that those territories had become Muslim-dominated, and that is at the point of a sword. That is not the way the kingdom of Jesus Christ will ever be advanced on earth. And it is not the way the enemies of Christ will be defeated on earth. Forced allegiance to a belief system does not equal belief. And a forced change of behavior driven only by a resolve to avoid personal harm is just a mirage. And God has no connection with that kind of change. A somewhat more subtle example of this kind of failure is the social gospel movement. Friends, institutional change is not heart change. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that the way that we wage war against the enemies of Christ and his church that way is not according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We can't do things the world's way. Swords and bullets won't do because ours is not a physical battle. Cultural change won't do because ours is not a cultural battle. Our warfare is not waged in the physical realm. So where is it waged? Well, ground zero in the battle for the souls of men and women and children is not physical ground. Ground zero is the minds of individual human beings because the mind is the gateway to the soul. That's by God's design. The mind is the gateway to the soul. That's why God's revelation of Himself to us is in words. Including the words spoken by the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, who revealed God to man in person. I could spend a lot of time developing that assertion, but it's not hard to defend from Scripture. I would encourage each of you at some point, if you've never done this, to get an electronic search, a Bible search, which you can find online very easily, and look for passages and verses that reveal what God commands us to do with our minds. Look for words and phrases like reckon, think, consider, set your mind on, let your mind dwell on, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
There are many, many, many such passages. What does all that have to do with this passage? Well, everything. In verse 5, Paul says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Look at Paul's words carefully here. Destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The word speculations is the Greek word logismos, from which we get logic. It could be translated reasonings. But speculations is a really good way to translate it here because Paul is talking here about the activity of the human mind that is not grounded in the truth of God. I've said this to you guys before, but the world, the world idolizes logic. But logic that is not submitted to the revelation of God is mush. It's nonsense. And it will not bring human beings to the truth. God made our logic to be set on fire by his word. The way God uses you and me to destroy all speculations that are lifted up against him is by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, Paul is not essentially talking here about our own thought lives, although he has a lot to say about that in other passages. He's talking here about our full court press to win over the minds of unbelievers through the proclamation and the adornment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you take the thoughts of another person's mind captive so that instead of producing groundless speculations, those thoughts produce obedience to Christ? Well, you don't. God does. But the way he does it through you is when you speak the truth in love. That's it. Speak the truth in love. The truth is the proclamation and the love is the adornment of the proclamation. It is not your powers of persuasion that will save a soul. It's God's powers of persuasion. <laughs> Beloved, the greatest weapon that we possess for the effective prosecution of this war that we're in is the word of the cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The power that we depend on is the power of the Holy Spirit to transform minds and hearts through the Word of God. It's always the Spirit working through the Word. The Word is never alone. The one who wrote it uses it, speaks through it to human hearts. And it never comes back to Him without accomplishing the purpose for which He sent it. Isaiah 55.11 in his great high priestly prayer for the saints in John 17, Jesus said to his father of his disciples and of all who would come to faith, he said, sanctify them in the truth. And then without skipping a beat, he said, your word is truth. This is a glorious reality for us as the children of God. God is welcoming you and me to be instruments of eternal power and transformation in the hearts of other human beings. But we must get the strategy and the weapons right in order to be useful to God for that transformation. 
We must stop taking up weapons that cannot and will not get the job done. We must lay down all reliance on the means and methods that unbelievers use to, to try to produce change in other people. Forcing change behavior will not change hearts. Man-derived logic will not change hearts. Stunning oratory will not change hearts. Personal charisma will not change hearts. Throwing money at misery will not change hearts. Social programs will not change hearts. The living and active Word of God, the Word of the cross of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, will transform hearts and will pluck people out of the darkness and plant them in the kingdom of God's beloved Son forever. The living Word of God is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The living Word of God is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are being saved. The living Word is the sharp, two-edged sword by which we will storm and destroy the very gates of hell. You do not need a graduate course in logic and you do not need a seminary education to destroy speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. All you need is the God-revealed truth of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, spoken in genuine love for the souls of lost human beings. And God will use you beyond anything that you can imagine. The war we are called to wage is not, is not for some of God's children to fight. It is for all of God's children to fight together. Together. And by the extravagant grace of God, we have the weapons and we have the wisdom that we need to fight it and to win it because we are on the side of the victor. Last thing I want to look at here is verse 6, how the war ends. In verse 6, Paul says, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. What does he mean when he says whenever your obedience is complete? Well, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the first letter, 1 Corinthians 1, I'm reading from verse 4. Paul said, I thank my God always concerning you, you Corinthian saints, for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a very, very optimistic and hopeful declaration about a bunch of saints who were a mess. From the outset, Paul makes it crystal clear that God is going to finish the good work that He began in every redeemed child of His. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't give you an amazing sense of optimism and hope, I don't know what will. 
In the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul exhorted the Corinthian saints to stop taking one another to court in front of unbelievers. And then he said to them, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says to these saints, we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. What an astonishing promise that we have from God. When God finishes out His sanctifying and glorifying work in every believer, when He has put away our sin from us and has made these not yet redeemed physical bodies immortal and imperishable, He's going to use you and me as agents to punish all disobedience among both men and angels. When that happens, we will pronounce the judgment of God as one people standing together with Christ on His side of the great white throne. Made perfectly one in Christ our head. Satan and his henchmen, along with all who persisted in believing his lies, will be forever banished from the presence of God and from the glory of his power. From everything that is good. And we will forever be the redeemed citizens of Christ's glorious kingdom in which righteousness dwells. That Beloved, is how this war will end. Dear Father, make us fight the real enemy with the right weapons during the little bit of time that remains to us here. While we wait for the glorious return and the decisive victory of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, it is in His magnificent name that we pray. Amen.